When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Good evening, everyone. We have a lot to get to tonight, including stunning new details from a Washington Post investigation of the January 6th insurrection. Plus, we are just hours away from polls opening in Virginia. And Glenn Youngkin continues to fearmonger about critical race theory coming for your children. But we begin the readout tonight with the looming threat to abortion rights in America. Today was the first hit in what could ultimately be a one-two punch during the Supreme Court, during this Supreme Court term, as the right wing dominated high court heard challenges to the nation's most restrictive abortion law in Texas. The justices heard two challenges to the Texas law known as SR8, effectively banning abortion after six weeks. The plaintiffs argued that the law has a chilling effect on abortion providers and that by putting enforcement into the hands of private citizens and deputizing them as bounty hunters, the law allows the state to evade review by the courts. Justice Elena Kagan pointed out the law seemed designed to do just that. The fact that after all oh, these many years, some geniuses came up with a way to evade the commands of that decision, as well as the command that the broader, even the even broader principle that states are not to nullify federal constitutional rights. And to say, oh, we've never seen this before, so we can't do anything about it. Um, I, I guess I just don't understand the argument. Justices heard arguments on behalf of Texas abortion providers and the Biden administration. And with respect to the abortion providers' arguments, the justices seem skeptical about the way the law is written, including two of the court's most openly anti-abortion members, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. Even apart from these procedural uh, requirements that you're talking about, I'm wondering if, in a defensive posture in state court, the constitutional defense can be fully aired. Justice Kagan points out there's a loophole that's been exploited here uh, or used here, which is the um, private suits are enforced by state court clerks or judges. So the question becomes, should we extend the principle of ex parte young to, in essence, close that loophole? But before you breathe any sighs of relief, consider two things. Number one, the court's right-wing majority allowed the Texas law to remain in effect while the court considers these challenges meaning Texas continues to be America's very own Gilead from The Handmaid's Tale. And number two, this is just a precursor to the second punch later this year, another abortion case coming down the road with even greater consequences. Exactly one month from now, on December 1st, the Supreme Court will hear arguments and a challenge to a Mississippi law banning most abortions after 15 weeks. That case is designed to take direct aim at Roe v. Wade. Mississippi wants the court to overrule its 1992 decision in Casey that says that states cannot impose an undue burden on the right to abortion before viability. As of now, according to the Guttmacher Institute, 12 states have laws, 12, 
that would be triggered if the court were to overturn Roe v. Wade, immediately banning all or nearly all abortions. But abortion rights is just one of the ways that this is shaping up to be a blockbuster term for the court. In just two days, the justices will hear a challenge to a New York law imposing limits on carrying guns outside the home. It's the it's the court's first Second Amendment case in more than a decade. And joining me now is Mark Heron, senior counsel for the Center for Reproductive Rights, who represented Texas abortion clinics and providers who are challenging the Texas law at the Supreme Court today. Maya Wiley, MSNBC legal analyst, and Ellie Mastal, justice correspondent for The Nation. Thank you all for being here. Mr. Heron, I want to go to you first. Surprisingly, it seemed like there was a little bit of um, agreement across the right to left aisle on the court. Did you get the sense that the justices on balance, most of them were skeptical of the Texas law? Well, Joy, thanks for having me. I I think um, finally uh, we're getting some some justices. It was heartening to hear that they're getting the argument that we've been making all along, which is although SB8 is about abortion, and it has stopped the provision of abortion care for 62 days across the state of Texas right now. This case is really, when you take a step back and look at it from a broader standpoint, it's whether a state can just decide, I don't, I'm going to ignore a Supreme Court decision. A Supreme Court decision recognizing a constitutional right can be become a dead letter in my state. And um, a state can just allow you know, anybody and everybody to sue for $10,000, a million dollars in the Chief Justice Roberts questions. Um, and it's, it's heartening to, to hear that finally some justices are recognizing that it's, you know, abortion's at stake, but tomorrow it could be every other single right that's uh, recognized in the Bill of Rights that's at stake if a state can simply decide, you know, Supreme Court decisions don't, don't uh, carry any weight in our state anymore. Yeah. You know, Maya, I mean, what good is having a right if you're too afraid to use it? Right. I mean, the purpose of this law um, was to make people too afraid to assist anyone to, uh, you know, attempt to get an abortion themselves and just sort of frighten abortion away. Right. And make it so that it was impossible to really use the right. Um, Do you get the sense that the fact that the Supreme Court allowed the, the law to be implemented while they make the decision indicates anything about where you think they might go? Well, I think it's a big concern because, as you say, Joy, you know, where there's no remedy, as we say as lawyers, there is no right. And so if you essentially say, we're going to allow a law to stand, that is patently and obviously and clearly and explicitly about making it too scary for providers to actually deliver the services that women are constitutionally allowed to get under existing law, that that but you can't come to court. You essentially can't come to the Supreme Court. You can't come and get it vindicated. And we won't even stop the case in order to make the decision about whether or not you can. That was a huge, huge concern to all of us. I think your point uh, uh, is right that, you know, it is important to see that two justices are changing their minds and that maybe that meant they truly were kind of tied up in these procedural arguments about what it meant and whether or not they can step in, and who would you actually say, no, you can't do that. But, you know, I think the problem with the entire argument from my standpoint was the fact that because it's a constitutional, because we're talking about whether Casey is going to remain the law of the land, of the case that the Supreme Court said, if you just make it too hard to get an abortion, you've already violated the constitutional rights of women. 
that you've essentially said, well, okay, we've made it so hard. In fact, we know it's so hard because 85% of women now can't get one. It has worked. And we're not having any conversation about that. And on December 1, we're going to decide whether Casey is still the law of the land. You know, and Ellie, it's it seems like the court sort of treated this law like they treat the death penalty. No, I guess the person's got to die. And the way they've treated voting rights, like, you know, I guess if we make it too hard for people to vote, oh, well, sorry for you. Like, that seems to be kind of the way that they're operating. But there was this sort of argument. I'm not going to play it, but just Kavanaugh, uh, you know, good old Kavanaugh suggesting that maybe one way they might turn against the law is that they fear the law might be might be retrofitted to be used against guns. That was kind of the argument he made. It was like, maybe we better hold our horses before they come for the guns with the same kind of strategy. What did you make of the arguments today? Oh, yeah. We got Kavanaugh, I believe, because he does not understand how a uterus works. He understands how a gun works. And people were able to make the case to him that the same thing that people are using against these uteruses that he doesn't understand, they could use against the gun. And that made Kavanaugh sit up and go, oh, wait a minute now, we can't have that. Look, I don't want to be the spit in the punch bowl. This was generally good. I do think Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh will eventually overturn SB8, but that's because SB8 is bonkers. Like, SB8 has always been this clown sideshow of a crazy rule that was never going to stand the test of time because, as we've expressed, you can't have a society if people can just overturn constitutional principles as they want by hiring private bounty hunters. SB8 was never the, 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 the way that they were going to overturn abortion. Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, the December 1st case, was always their preferred way of taking away rights. And I heard nothing today to yeah. suggest the people that Donald Trump appointed that he promised would be anti-abortion. I heard nothing today to suggest that they have changed their minds in any significant way about the overall rights of a woman to choose. This bonkers SB8 argument, yeah, I think that will eventually go down, although not today, because let's not forget the other part of what happened today was a question about whether or not they will overturn SB8 right now right. or wait six months to do it. And I don't know that we that there was a lot of movement in terms of stopping it right now. But eventually SB8 will go away. It is the larger issue about a woman's right to choose that is still very much on the chopping block. Right. I mean, Mr. Heron, you know, the Houston Public Radio reports that abortions fell by half in the first month um, of this of, of this abortion ban, 50 percent fewer. It, 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 the law is already having the intended effect. So it, it's 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 hard to imagine that we're, that no matter how this goes, the ultimate ruling that, you know, conservatives aren't just going to step on the gas and try another sort of similarly clever uh, means of getting what they want. Yeah, I mean, this uh, year, this legislative year has been the worst year in history for abortion uh, rights that state legislatures are emboldened. They are passing restriction after restriction after restriction, uh, making abortion access harder and harder to reach. And what's happening, what you see happening right now in the state of Texas, it's it's not only that uh, people are being denied their right to access abortion, but now because there's such a rush to, to get a, a access outside of the state of Texas, it's it's affecting um, patients outside of the state of Texas in Oklahoma and Kansas. People are being delayed by weeks because of the Texas law. 10% of uh, people of reproductive age live in Texas. And so, uh, you know, this is a crisis and it's got to, it's, it's time. It is way past time. This law has been in effect for two months 
People have been denied their constitutional rights for two months. It is past time. We need this law to be blocked and it needs to be blocked immediately. And the other thing I want to point out is, you know, I heard something I thought incredibly remarkable today. The state of Texas actually said to the Supreme Court that after Brown versus the Board of Education, if a state had just passed a law like SB8 to say, you know, anybody can sue somebody who integrates a school and federal courts can do nothing about it. That is not the kind of constitutional democracy that we live in. This is that is not our republic. And that cannot be, uh, you know, that's not the rule of law. Uh, the, The federal courts have got to be able to weigh in here. And that's exactly in my, you know, you know, nightmare with me for a minute, because, right, once the right has found this technique, they could use it on almost anything, whether they want to go after voting rights or integration, you know, or, or, you know, integrated schools. Pretty much you'll be able to sue anybody but a police officer that killed a family member. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, Justice Breyer made that point. He said, so if we were in 1957, Alabama, you know, we. And and you and you had a state that said, you know what, we the state won't stop the little black children from going to integrating white schools. We'll just deputize our residents to sue anybody who helps them walk through that door. Isn't that what you're saying? And you know that just put the pin in it. I think right directly. Even if if the Texas law gave people a million dollars for suing people to block their constitutional rights, even when they are not harmed in any way. Let's be clear, anybody, any stranger off the street can say, oh, hey, I'd love to make $10,000 and I won't even have to pay any lawyers because I'll get my legal fees. I'm going to court. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is the kind of constitutional lawlessness that we fought a civil rights, uh, that we fought a civil war over. And I say that because what we were hearing from Texas today with states' rights, plain and simple. It was that there is no republic, there is no federal, there is no constitutional, no one can tell us what to do. And it feels, Ellie, like that's where this is going. The the South Africa model feels like it's fully in effect. And regardless of how they rule on this particular law, I feel like this Supreme Court, the majority of them anyway, are down with that future. I mean, let's let's again, let's look at really the, the full scope of what they were arguing today. There was an actual argument from Neil Gorsuch and Anthony, uh, and, uh, and Samuel Alito um, arguing that the the move to to control women's bodies in this way was no different than the move to force masks on people during a pandemic. Like they've actually made a one to one connection between mask mandates and taking away abortion rights. So that's at least, you know, two or three justices on the court are all the way over to the right in terms of their crazy. And nothing seems to be happening to pull them back to the center. Um, This is a this is a generational problem that we have that has that has come about because we let Mitch McConnell um, steal a couple of Supreme Court seats. Um, And now we have to deal with this for a generation unless Democrats do something to reform the court. And and once again, it brings us right back to the reform the court argument, because you're right. That's the only way out of this nightmare. Mark Herron, Maya Wiley, Ellie Mastal, thank you all very much. Up next on The Readout, the plot to overthrow democracy, new details on the warnings of violence leading up to January 6th, and the pressure placed on Mike Pence to, quote, show courage and spine to keep Trump in office. Also, down to the wire in Virginia. It's a test of whether the Republicans' racist lies about critical race theory, which is not taught in any Virginia school, is actually a winning message for the party of Trump. Plus, 
the widow of the slain pastor of Charleston's Mother Emanuel AME Church, joins me on the landmark settlement with the Department of Justice. And tonight's absolute worst, the alarming lack of urgency as the world literally burns. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. NBC News Today reports that the Select Committee on January 6th is expected to subpoena John Eastman, the legal architect of Trump's attempted coup, by the middle of this week. It comes after The Washington Post reported that Eastman emailed Vice President Mike Pence's team during the insurrection while Pence was hiding from the mob that was out to kill him. And unbelievably, Eastman blamed the violence on Pence's refusal to overturn the election. He wrote a top Pence aide saying, this siege is because you and your boss did not do what was necessary. Yesterday, The Washington Post also released a comprehensive investigative report on the genesis and aftermath of the insurrection and uncovered a cascade of previously undisclosed warnings that preceded the attack, noting that Trump was the driving force at every turn. Among other things, the Post points out that as early as September 26th of last year, Trump was aware that Congress could play a pivotal role in deciding the outcome of the election. I don't want to go back to Congress either, even though we have an advantage if we go back to Congress. Does everyone understand that? I think it's 26 to 22 or something because it's counted one vote per state. It was just three days later that Trump, during a presidential debate, ominously told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. But it wasn't just right wing militias that answered his call to arms. As the Post reports, researchers watched how Trump's election lies radicalized his supporters in real time. And when Trump turned his focus to the joint session of Congress on January 6th, the volume of threatening messages expanded by the hour. From coast to coast, the nation's regional homeland security offices were blinking red. The hour, date and location of concern was the same. 1 p.m., the U.S. Capitol, January 6th. One DHS official even called D.C.'s health department and urged them to prepare for a mass casualty event. To sum it up, it's damning new evidence of the security failures that day. But moreover, it highlights the undeniable fact that Trump was responsible for the violence that unfolded. And yet, for 187 minutes, as his followers laid siege to the Capitol, Trump did nothing. In fact, he even he didn't even report to the Oval Office. He was holed up instead in his private dining room as the crisis played out. Joining me now is Olivia Troy, former senior aide to Vice President Pence. 
and director of the Republican Accountability Project. Um, and Olivia, there was lots and lots in this very lengthy Washington Post report, including reports that Senator Lindsey Graham yelled at the sergeant of arms. What are you doing? Take back the Senate. You've got guns. Use them. He wanted them to start shooting at these insurrectionists. What do you take away from this sort of accumulation of information? The fact that there were all of these blinking red warnings that were just not listened to, quite frankly, all the way all all the way through Donald Trump's absence, I guess, is another way, the only way to put it, sort of AWOL status that day. I think it's incredible looking at the reporting, the in-depthness of the situation and just contrasting that with the behavior of current Republican leaders today where they continue to try to memory hold this. I mean, this is just so striking, right? 187 minutes where the president of the United States at the time sat, watched the Capitol be attacked, watched lives, people get hurt, lives lost, watched leaders of our country fear for their lives and just sat there and did nothing. And this is a man who still holds the Republican hostage today. They still bow down to him. They still kiss the ring. There are many candidates out there who refuse to denounce him. There are candidates out there that are seeking his endorsement as we go forward to elections. And so when I look at this, I think that is what you're subscribing to. This type of individual who on the darkest day of our country on that day did absolutely nothing for our country to protect it, to protect our democracy. And this is a person, this is a person that everyone's rallying around. This is a person that, you know, Youngkin still hasn't denounced him. We have an election tomorrow. And by the way, some of these people who were organizing this rally, they're tweeting out today about the elections that are taking place tomorrow. They're already tweeting out conspiracies and lies about it. And we've seen what that leads to. We've seen the type of violence that that can lead to when they push these lies. And that is what I fear is going forward. What this all means. We've seen all this play out. So we can't move on from this because it matters so much. It matters so much for the future. And as I read this, that's all that kept going through my head. And just, you know, it's just so astounding to think about this, the greater picture. Uh, you know, and just as a, as a contrast, I mean, you, you have Donald Trump trying to hide documents, trying to keep the select committee from finding out documents. And when you read through this this piece in The Washington Post, you kind of understand why. Because even before the election happened, he was saying, hey, you know, maybe we could use Congress as a way to, regardless of how things go, to keep me in office. All the way through watching it happen, it does feel that at every turn, Donald Trump was the person who was goading, pushing and inspiring people to commit violence, anything to stay in power. It's hard to get around that, no? Absolutely. He was the commander in chief of this entire insurrection. He incited it. And look, when you're the president, words matter. When you're leaders, words matter. And seeing the reporting about the followers and supporters saying that, you know, he's, it's a call to action. He's called him to action. He didn't tell them to bring the guns because he can't actually say it, but he's telling them to bring the guns. That's how they're interpreting this. They're interpreting this message. And so a lot of these people use this as a double entendre when they speak. You know, we were watching elected officials when they speak with such violence, when they put violence in their, you know, in their uh, the ads on social media right now. All of that matters because it's processed by, and supported by the people that follow them. And they take that in. And from a national security standpoint, I mean, this is all remains just very concerning. Well, let's play a tale of two Republicans here. Um, this is Matt Gates yesterday, who we should remind folks 
um, is being investigated for potential trafficking of a 17-year-old girl, but is not embarrassed at all. He's still out there talking. Here he is saying that he thinks um, that he'd like to see the metal detectors at the Capitol blown up. I said, man, is it is it tannonite or C4 we want to put in those metal detectors and we blow them up? Tannonite is basically like C4. I mean, this feels like fifth column activity inside the Republican Party. You you have something called the Republican Accountability Project. You're 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 a former Republican that is that is now fighting what used to be your party. It does feel like they're all insurrection, race scaremongering and really gearing up to never accept the results of an election unless one of them wins it. This is who they are. There's no room for the truth. That's why you see people like Adam Kinzinger saying that, you know, he's going to continue to uphold the fight and fight from, you know, from outside now. He's not a part of this anymore. There's no room for people like Liz Cheney right now. Look at the way they've treated her. So this is the Republican Party. And anyone who is thinking otherwise is delusional. They're not living in reality. And so I, you know, I, 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 I am concerned about going forward, what this means for our future as a country to have a party like this that continues to behave in this manner, because it's fundamentally just dangerous. And I think we have one functioning party right now. And I think we have to do everything we can to sort of support those people who are rational people who are yeah. actually trying to govern and push policies that make a difference in our country. It's a scary time. <laughs> we say scaring is caring a lot on this show, but it, there's there's no way around it. It is pretty frightening uh, to have that element inside of one of our formerly great Repub- uh, great political parties in America. Livy Troy, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. All right. uh, Still ahead. It is election eve, as you just heard, and candidates are making their final pitches to voters in the Virginia governor's race. That means Republican Glenn Trumpkin is misquoting Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his bid to put racial division and culture wars front and center. The latest next. Stay with us. everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. In the immortal words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we're, we're called to judge one another based on the content of our character and not the color of our skin. And that's why there's no place for critical race theory in our school system and why on day one I'm going to ban it. It's literally the only quote they know. Glenn Youngkin's closing argument to Virginia voters included the latest form of Republican gaslighting, pimping the 
one Martin Luther King Jr. quote that they can remember while vowing to erase everything Dr. King stood for from the history books. Joining me now, Don Calloway, Democratic strategist and founder of the National Voter Protection Action Fund, and Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large of The Bulwark. Um, you know, this is the closing argument. Obviously, this is the way they want to go. Um, and Don, the reason that this kind of works is that they don't really have to make an argument about what's actually in the schools. They can just get people to feel a certain way. And it's the feeling. Republicans are really good at running on just feelings, not policy, but just yes. this feels weird to me. I don't like it. And therefore, I'm going to vote Republican. Uh, I want to play. This is a, a, a thing called The Good Liars, like a comedy troupe. Uh, I guess a comedy sort of video kind of, you know, I don't know what they are. Actually, they're like they do comedy, but they go out and they interview people and they do sort of real word interviews. Here they are interviewing someone in Virginia, one of them. What is critical race theory? Well, I'm not going to get into the specifics of it because I don't understand it that much. But it's something that I don't what little bit that I know I don't care for. And, and what have you heard that, that you don't? Well, that you I'm, don't not, like? I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I don't. Uh, I don't I don't have that much knowledge on it. And to, to just for context, Don, the, the, the actual original question was, what's the most important issue in this race? And the gentleman said critical race theory. So, you know, right. Republicans have managed to turn this thing that, I, you know, I call it Christopher Rufo theory. You can call it whatever you want. They, they made up a thing that feel that makes people feel a certain way. And, and it's so far it's working for them in a certain level. Right. It is. It is. Well, first of all, to Glenn Youngkin's despicable twisting of Dr. Dr. King's words, actually, you know, he says them, not twist them, but he says them out of context. As my brother, the great Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson says, we should never allow ourselves to be disavowed of the notion of a radically justice based Dr. King. And that's ultimately who he was. That's ultimately why he was killed. We should never allow ourselves to forget that. But critical race theory is, I mean, and, and we've seen it uh, evolve into this discussion of parental rights or parents' rights in the, in the school context. They're ultimately talking about uh, critical race theory as a avatar for white fragility and white rights, right? To, to not have to acknowledge systemic racism, to not have to even teach in schools on the history of white supremacy and how it's baked into the fabric of this country. Unfortunately for Democrats, particularly unfortunately for Terry McAuliffe, he has allowed Glenn Youngkin to grab onto this sliver, this minor uh, you know, shade of truth and run it for the last 60 days of this campaign because of a you know, a perhaps less than uh, careful moment that Terry McAuliffe had in, in a primary and excuse me, in the primary debates. And it's gotten this far. Uh, and we hope that he's not able to take advantage of low Democratic turnout and a sleepy electorate to run it this far. But to be clear, this discussion of parental rights, ultimately, this discussion of critical race theory is not only a gross misunderstanding of what the academic definition and the academic discipline, Derek Bell's academic discipline of critical race theory is, but it is an intentional misconstruing, which has misled these fundamentally kind of white male rural voters into believing that, you know, angry Malcolmian black supremacists are going to take over public schools. And it's not. Unfortunately, and I'll end with this, Republican strategists know that, but they know how to tap into that deep ethereal white fragility. And it's so sad that it's working 
five miles from where I live. You know, it, Charlie, it, it, I think yeah. that the twisting of Dr. King actually demonstrates how Republicans have done this so well. They've taken somebody who was absolutely despised and thought of as a radical and dangerous communist when he was alive, and they've turned him into a greeting card that says, nobody's ever bad, nothing's ever bad, everything is fine, everyone just, we just need to all talk about how good everyone is. They've taken his whole career and distilled it down to that one quote that they can remember, content of our character. And they don't understand anything about Dr. King. Just like they don't, you know what I mean? They don't, you don't have to know anything about Dr. King. You just have to memorize that one line. And then everything that makes you feel like anybody white is, is that you're saying that white people weren't like great all throughout history. Ah, 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 I'll throw King at you. And I think they've done that really well with a lot of these issues. It's just a feelings based kind of strategy. But I'm not sure that Democrats have ever figured out whether it was Reagan doing it with welfare, whether it's now. I, I'm not sure Democrats have figured out how to respond to it. No, and we're going to find that out uh, tomorrow in, in Virginia. You you mentioned the name Christopher Rufo, and I just kind of wanted to put a pin in all of that because, of course, he is one of the theorists and the activists who's been pushing this. And then he's been very, very transparent about his agenda, that, that he wants people to pay. I think he actually tweeted out that he wants people to pick up the newspaper and see something that makes them uncomfortable and immediately think Boom. critical race theory. That's so it. Anything involving race that they do not understand or that they might find questionable, you've labeled it cri critical race theory. And I'm glad you played that clip, as I was actually going to mention that that clip. You could have that same um, you know interview uh, with legislators all around the country who are voting to ban critical race theory. Right. What exactly is critical race theory? Could you show me an example of critical race theory in any public school in in in, in your state in Wisconsin? The Republican legislature has not only, you know, passed a ban on critical race theory, they've actually come up with a list of words <laughs> that are actually banned that you cannot use. Terms like multiculturalism yes. and social justice. So it would be interesting if somebody would have gone back at, uh, at Mr. Yunkin and said, you know, you're quoting Martin Luther King Jr., but you're going to ban what you call critical race theory. Under your ban, would you actually be able to teach about Martin Luther King? Would you be able to have a curriculum that would include his letters from the jail you could not. or the, the entire speech rather than just the excerpt? Because I'm guessing that somebody's going to stand up and say, well, that makes me feel uncomfortable. This exactly. must be critical race theory. And, and I mean, the thing is, he's, he gave speeches about America may go to hell. You probably you cannot teach that because so and I want to stay with just for a moment, because I do think I'm going to stay with you for a second, Charlie. The, the tomahawk chop. Can we show this? Do, uh, Trump did it. At the Major League Baseball game, at the at the World Series game, he and his wife did it. The governor of Georgia did it. They're all participating in this. It's it's the same kind of thing. There is this sense among some white Americans, not all, but some that you don't that they aren't allowed to do or say what they want because right. some minority group is going to be offended. And it is that that's what critical race theory is to them, that I don't get to say the jokes I want to say, say the, the, the memes I want to say, do the sure. tomahawk chop. People get mad. And I don't like that. That is what they're right. legislating against. No. Right. And and they, they like that sort of transgressive behavior. You know, we have to they, point they out do. that they like Major League people. Baseball. <laughs> 
Yeah. Remember when Major League Baseball actually boycotted the state of Georgia because of its restrictive voting law? And of course, Major League Baseball is there is back in a big way with the World Series and they invite Donald Trump to come and do the tomahawk uh, chop. So speaking of, of of hypocrisy, but you're absolutely right. I mean, what, what someone like Donald Trump does, he gives permission to people to engage yep. in behavior Be your that worst maybe self. we were at the point of 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 questioning. And so that's right. I do think that you need to see this in the context of of a new white backlash, uh, the kind of thing that we saw, as you have pointed out on the yep. show over and over again, of, yep. of reconstruction. Yeah. Um and, and 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 this is basically just the the fill in for the term that they use to provide them the the, the, the context. And the they con- don't want to be reconstructed. They say, I want to be my worst self and I want you to accept it and I don't care. That's what they want. And that to them is what critical race theory means. Don Calloway, Charlie Sykes, thank y'all very much. Up next, a historic settlement in the 2015 massacre of the mother Ima- at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We'll be right back. I still relive and I still think about what happened being there. I'll remember it to the day I die. And so I live with it every day. Yes, there is a settlement. And, you know, I don't think about that. I think about if I had the opportunity to bring Clemente back, I'd I'd switch. You can all take the settlement. Bring my husband back to me. Bring their father back to them. It's been more than six years since nine people were shot and killed in the horrific massacre at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. After it was revealed that the FBI's background check system failed to catch a previous felony drug arrest that should have blocked the sale of the gun that was used by the 21-year-old white supremacist, the families of the victims sued. On Thursday, the Justice Department announced an $88 million settlement with the families of the victims and survivors. One of the attorneys for the victims calls it one of the largest settlements in a collection of civil rights cases in the nation's history. And joining me now is Jennifer Pinckney, who survived the shooting and is the widow of the Reverend Clemente Pinckney. Also, the family's attorney, Gerald Malloy, who is a South Carolina state senator who served with Reverend Pinckney. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. So we just saw a, a clip of you saying, you know, you, you would throw this settlement aside and have your husband back. Um, and, I, and I hate to take you back to this day, but you were there. You were not just, a, you know, a, a widow of a, of a victim. You yourself were a victim. You and your daughter were there. Yes. So this is really big for you. It is. It is. You know, um, we were there and it's something that I will always remember for the rest of my life, you know, sitting in the office and the bullets coming through and, you know, trying to protect my daughter. You know, it was something that I will always remember for the rest of my life. She was a little girl. She was, I think she was what, 12, 11? She was 11 she years was old. Six. She was six years old. Yes. She's 11 now. She's 12 now. Does she talk about it at all? No, she doesn't. She doesn't know with both of my girls, you know, they'll, we'll talk about, their father and you know daddy this daddy that and just bring up different things he used to say and do and so forth but as far as just her bringing up that particular day no she doesn't yeah and senator you you served with clemente pinkney you talked about his last words yes well on the senate floor on the senate floor where clemente had gave a wonderful speech on body cameras and what he did was say it was after the murder of um, walter scott and then in the end, he said, God teaches us to love all. And in the end, justice will be done. 
And that's one of the best speeches you would ever hear from the Senate floor. And it was somewhat prophetic. Um, Clemente was an absolute terrific person. Um, he called himself an itinerant pastor. Um, anytime that there was something going on with the church or a church member and there was something in the Senate, he was a pastor first. Yeah. And, you know, when, when you th- when I think about those those final words, you know, Mrs. Pinckney, I remember a pastor uh, not from South Carolina saying to me, you know, black folks are always expected to have amazing grace. No matter what we suffer, no matter how much we're hurting, we're supposed to have grace. And I remember a lot of media people asking the victims of the, the Charleston nine, the family members, you know, do you forgive? But. I want to ask you if you if you're still angry. I mean, the state of South Carolina obviously failed you. This court has now said they failed you. Are you still angry about that? Um, You can't be angry. Um, That's something that, you know, if you hold that in, you can't move forward. Yeah. And so you have to be able to you never forget. You'll always remember. And I will always be there to talk to my girls and tell them and other people what happened and so forth. That's from my standpoint. But um, it's something that you just never forget. Yeah. And let's talk about this specific settlement. Eighty eight million dollars. That is significant because for those who are not familiar with white nationalists, white supremacists, they use eighty eight for Heil Hitler, that is their symbol. And so that, that, that's a very significant settlement amount. Talk about what that means. Well, on the day of the reaching the settlement, it, it really didn't cross my mind. Yeah. Uh, we were trying to do the best that we could for these families because they had suffered so much and had given so much. But during the evaluation, what we have is that we have a civil case. We have been in mediation for the better part of two days, jockeying back back and forth, it wasn't easy. And so then at the very end, when we we got to a point and said, this is the number, then someone says, there's somebody else's hands that is touching this. This is the hands of God. There's something going on here. Because in the end, not to be cute about it, um, would you have taken 100 instead? Of course. But what happened was is that that was the number and we had a discussion about it. And then the question was, they said, do we need to t- change it from a dollar off or a dollar less or a dollar more or something? Yeah. And then someone said, you know what? Let's take it back. Let's make that number mean something. Yeah. When it meant something to someone else, where they use it as a racist symbol, let's, let's take it back and make it a symbol of pride. Yeah. This is something that where we were trying to right or wrong. And, and hats off to uh, uh, Attorney General um, Merrick Garland, um, for his compassion, for his emphasis on civil rights, um, and all the work of all the lawyers that were involved on both sides. Um, Vanita Gupta was um, tremendous in this work. Uh, we had Bakari Sellers that came in to help um, broker part of the deal. We had some wonderful lawyers like Alvin Hamer and Mullins McLeod and others that, that worked really hard on this case. So it was a, it was a come togetherness um, at that time. So that number came in and, and right now, um, the number means something else to us than yeah. the number of bullets that Dylan Roof took into the church, 88 bullets. He used 77 in seven magazines, the 88 that he inscribed on his shoe. And so it meant something to him. This would mean something else, else for others is that this is a just result. And uh, Mrs. Pinkney, you had a chance to meet with the attorney general. Would you share with us some of what he said to the families? He was just very compassionate. Um, You know, it it almost looked like he had tears in his eyes. I mean, you know, he was like, you know, I know this doesn't bring your family member back, but it was something that, you know, 
we have to do. Yeah. Well, I want to, uh, you know, just say that we have deepest condolences to your family, uh, you and your girls, um, for your loss. Um, and I want to congratulate you all um, as the attorneys who made this settlement happen. This is justice in a way. As you said, it's not going to bring back um, your loved ones. But Jennifer Pinckney, um, State Senator Gerald Malloy, thank you both very much. Thank you. Really appreciate you both. All right, and don't go anywhere. Tonight's absolute worst affects every single person on this planet. And we are quickly running out of time to do something about it. We'll be right back. While we are sitting here right now, the planet we live on is dying. This year, the U.S. has seen 18 weather disasters that have killed more than 500 people, costing taxpayers more than a billion dollars. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which studies this stuff, nearly half the country has been subjected to a devastating climate event. There have been forest fires in California and Nevada, extreme droughts in California, Oregon, Utah, Montana and North Dakota, severe weather in Texas and Oklahoma, flooding in Louisiana, which gutted thousands of homes, devastating tornadoes in Alabama, Mississippi and Tennessee, tropical storms up and down the eastern seaboard that left Florida homes bombarded and New York City subway stations submerged which, needless to say, is not supposed to happen. And that's just what's happening here in the U.S. Around the world, the number of climate-related disasters has tripled in the last 50 years. Tripled. Extraordinarily hot and cold temperatures are responsible for 5 million deaths every year. That's about how many people have died around the world from COVID. Climate collapse is taking the equivalent number of lives every single year. In 2018, the, intergovernment, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report that warned us that if humans don't get their acts together and drastically, and I mean drastically, cut carbon emissions in the next 12 years, we will have irreversibly worse droughts, flooding, extreme heat, and climate-induced poverty. That was three years ago. And even with current commitments to cut greenhouse gas emissions, we're on track to see temperatures rise by nearly three degrees Celsius this century. In layman's terms, this Earth could eventually become unlivable. Today, world leaders gathered in Glasgow, Scotland, for the COP26 climate summit, where delegates called for accelerated action. Enough of treating nature like a toilet. Enough of burning and drilling and mining our way deeper. We are digging our own graves. The longer we fail to act, the worse it gets, and the higher the price when we are eventually forced by catastrophe to act. We must act in the interests of all of our people who are dependent on us. And if we don't, we will allow the path of greed and selfishness to sow the seeds of our common destruction. President Biden, who is trying to reverse the damage done by his predecessor and the Republican Party, made an appeal of his own. This is the challenge of our collective lifetimes, the existential threat, threat to human existence as we know it. And every day we delay, the cost of inaction increases. God bless you all and may God save the planet. I'm glad he said that because it's going to take a miracle to turn this planet around. So tonight, the lack of global outrage and action when it comes to the demise of the only planet we've got is the absolute worst. And that's tonight's readout.
When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.